Good morning. morning. Let's begin with a class of prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we uh, thank you so much for your beauty of character, the truths of your kingdom, and the way you run your universe. We ask that your spirit will join us, enlighten us, draw us near to you, and make us effective in sharing your kingdom's truths. We pray in your holy name. Amen. A few announcements. We're doing our Power of Love training and equipping course. January 17 and 19, 2020, Dallas, Texas. Uh, you guys can see the uh, schedule online. Um, but I'm excited to tell you that we have now uh, booked Michael O'Brien to be with us, who will be doing music and leading us in some music. And we, he will do a concert for us on Friday evening, a Christian concert. And so we'll have some really beautiful music uh, for um, Friday and Saturday. So um, I think you'll enjoy that. All right, let's begin class today. We're doing lesson six in Ezra and Nehemiah, and the title to the lesson is The Reading of the Word. And the first paragraph says, The Jerusalem wall was finished with the placement of the gates. The Israelites, under the leadership of Nehemiah, had thus completed the main task. When the wall was completed, the surrounding nations were in awe and recognized that this was done by God. The enemies realized that the God of Israel was real because despite the incredible opposition and hatred of uh, hatred the Israelites experienced, they still had completed the work they had set out to do. Now, as we've talked in here before, we believe that the Bible records real people who did real stuff in history. In other words, it's historical record of real people's lives doing real stuff. But we also believe that Israel was not only real people doing real things, but what was recorded in Scripture was selected for purposes to teach larger realities than just those historical times. The Old Testament sacrificial system, for instance, they really built a temple. They really sacrificed animals. They did these historical activities. But they were done to teach an object lesson of a larger reality, a plan of salvation that had nothing to do with animals and a building in Israel. Uh, the seven miracle births we've talked about before were real historical events, but they all, every one of them was an object lesson for Christ. Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery, and he rose to become the ruler of a nation and to save the people. This is an object lesson for Jesus, who became a servant so all the way down to the form of slave in Philippians chapter 2, but he rises to become ruler and save the people. Jerusalem is a real historic city. But it's an object lesson for the new Jerusalem. Is it not? You see? So there's real historical stuff, but this real historical stuff has a larger meaning. So what is the object lesson? What is the larger reality through, taught through the historical events of Israel's captivity, their being set free, their rebuilding of the walls, and then the reading of the word? And the rebuilding of the temple, the rebuilding of the wall, the re- and reading of the What is the object lesson? Well, let's go through some of this. Why did they go into captivity in the first place? What was the reason? Idolatry. Idolatry. The rejecting of God and choosing false gods, this resulted in God withdrawing his protection and enemies taking them into captivity. What happens to you and me in our hearts and minds when we reject the truth about God and prefer the methods and principles of the selfish world? Does God give us the freedom? Does he set us free to do that? And do we go into the captivity of fear, sinfulness, addictions, or whatever the world will enslave us with? Will, Will that happen to us if we leave God and go into the ways of the world? We end up captives, don't we? When Israel was taken captive... Was the temple defiled and destroyed? Yes or no? 
Yes, it was. When we go into the captivity of sin, is the spirit temple being defiled? And if we don't come back to God, we'll eventually be destroyed. Jesus came to earth as a human, and he told them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it up, raise it up again. Did Jesus rebuild the spirit temple and eliminate the temptation to sin and restore God's perfection and God's design into the species human? Did he do that? But after Christ's victory at the cross, did Satan counterattack what Christ did, the truth that Jesus revealed, and instead set himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God? That's uh, Thessalonians I was quoting. Did he do that? How did Satan set himself up in God's temple? Did he go up in heaven and knock Jesus off a throne in a building up there? So what temple? It's the spirit temple again. And he did it by... There was a power that was going to rise, a little horn power was going to seek to change God's law. Now what happens to how we view God when we view God running his government like Caesar runs Rome. Now, who is the Roman government patterned after? Ah, so if we teach that God runs his universe like a Caesar runs Rome, making up rules and using his power to torture and kill people who break his rules, we aren't worshiping the creator God anymore. We're worshiping this other being who set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. This is how the spirit temple, the minds of people, became defiled. This is how we went into the dark ages. Back to Israel. Did God's spirit move upon the king to set the people of Israel free? Did God's spirit move upon the hearts? Move upon, does God's spirit move upon our hearts when we have been in sin, moving us to repent and return to him? In order when we return to him, to set us free. Yeah. Is the Holy Spirit moving upon people today with an end-time message designed to teach people the truth about God's design law in order to free people from this captivity of an imperial dictator God they need to be protected from? Yes, this is a message. You see the parallels through what the, the real history but there's a parallel. Now, did the people of Israel, once being set free, begin rebuilding the temple and the walls surrounding the city? Did they do that? And since 1844, has a message about God as creator and his laws as design laws that when accepted, set us free from living in fear of God we open the heart. We experience cleansing from the indwelling spirit. He writes his law in our hearts and minds. The temple is being cleansed. Is this message been going forward? Well, it has been. But did the people of Israel meet opposition as they were trying to rebuild the walls? Have we met opposition as we've been trying to rebuild the walls? And so let's consider this quotation from a book called Prophets and Kings. The spiritual restoration of which the work carried forward in Nehemiah's day was a symbol is outlined in the words of Isaiah. They shall build the old wastes 
They shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the waste cities. They shall be... They that shall be of thee shall build up the old waste places. They shall raise up the foundations of many generations, and they shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the path to dwell in. That was all quoting in Isaiah. Continuing on with the, uh, the book. The prophet here describes a people who, in a time of general departure from truth and righteousness, are seeking to restore the principles. What's that word mean? Principles. There's a principles that are the foundation of the kingdom of God. They are repairers of a breach that has been made in God's law. The wall that has been placed around his chosen ones for their protection, and obedience to whose precepts of justice, truth, and purity is to be their perpetual safeguard. In words of unmistakable meaning, the prophet points out the specific work of this remnant people who build the wall. If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure in my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall honor him in not doing thy own ways, nor finding thy own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words, then thou shalt, notice it's about selfishness versus trust in God, then shalt thou delight thyselves in the Lord, and I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth, and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. In the time of the end, every divine institution is to be restored. The breach made in the law, now notice these next words, at the time the Sabbath was changed. Notice this, this particular author doesn't say, the breach made in the law by changing the Sabbath. Is there something different? The breach made in the law at the time the Sabbath was changed is that the same thing as saying the breach made in the law by changing the Sabbath? Get your mind around that. At the time the Sabbath was changed, my man is to be prepared. God's remnant people standing before the world as reformers are to show that the law of God is the foundation of all enduring reform. Why is the law of God the foundation of all enduring reform? Why? Because it's the law upon which life is built, the principles that life operate upon. This is why. One cannot be healthy in violations of the laws of health. Continue on with the quote. All enduring reform, and that the Sabbath of the fourth commandment is to stand as a memorial of creation, a constant reminder of the power of God. Pause. What do you hear when you hear that statement? A memorial of creation, a constant reminder of the power of God. Do you hear might and power? Creation, creative power. Is that what you're hearing? Most Adventists do. Power to recreate the spirit and the soul. Power to recreate the spirit and the soul. You see, if you hear power, it's a memorial of creation. It's might and power. If that's what you hear, then why does Zechariah say, not by might nor by power, but by the way the spirit works, says the Lord. Hmm. What power, if you think about creation week of planet Earth, what power of God was displayed on day seven? You see, it wasn't might and power. He rested. He stopped using energy, creative power. So if we take the Sabbath as an evidence of God's power, it's not the evidence of the power of the first six days. It's some other power that's being evidenced. Think this through with me. Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the 
power of God into salvation. Well, what does that tell you? How is the gospel power? What kind of power is the gospel? Well, what is the gospel? Okay, where's the war being waged? What kind of war are we in? Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon, there's war in heaven. This war is polemo. Comes from, we get the word polemic. It's a war of words, war of ideas, war of arguments. For they live in the world. We don't wage wars, the world does. The weapons we fight with are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. Notice what we demolish. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought. If you have a war over words, ideas, Satan is the father of lies. Where do lies have power? Do lies have power? Yes, but we have divine weapons that demolish the strongholds of Satan. We have, we have something that's powerful that can demolish and win the war. Is it the exercise of might, the nuclear weapons, flaming swords, lightning from heaven? Is this the power that can destroy a lie? The truth. So what do we see then is the power of God revealed in the Sabbath. He stopped using power. He rested on the seventh day. He didn't use might and power. What did he use? Love. Love and truth. Love and truth. This is his character being revealed. And it's the power of God that destroys the lies, that suggests that God is like a Roman dictator, that he sets up rules and then he uses power to enforce rules. And what day seven reveals is the power of God is to leave you free. The power is to love you and give you complete freedom. And if you choose to break his designs for life, he grieves, his heart aches, he comes after you with every resource to heal you, to redeem you. But if you insist on still going against him, he cries as he lets you go. And as you see the power of God in truth, in love, in freedom, Romans 2, the kindness of God leads us to redemption and to repentance. We see the truth and the truth dispels. God isn't like that. He isn't the one I need to be afraid of. He isn't the one I need to run from like Adam and Eve ran and hid. I don't need to run from him. And because of this imperial lie, because of Satan setting himself up in God's kingdom, excuse me, God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God, as it says in Thessalonians, because of this distortion about how God runs his universe, many people in the Christian world and the world at large are more afraid of God who's trying to save them than the sin in their life which is destroying them. It's like being more afraid of the doctor who has the remedy to cure the infection that you're dying from and so you run from the doctor and he's just running after you everywhere trying to give you an injection of antibiotics to save your life, but you keep running. So the power of God, the memorial of creation, a constant reminder of the power and the power's truth presented in love, leaving people free. This is the power. Many people miss it. They read that and say, it's might and power. It's not. Satan never alleged God was not powerful in physical might. He never challenged God to an arm wrestling contest. I'm stronger. Didn't happen. It was always about trustworthiness. You can't trust this God with the power. So what was the breach made in the law when the Sabbath was changed? It went from design law to imperial. Remember, why doesn't a church committee ever get together and vote that on, you know, again, we're having fires in California. Wouldn't it be neat if the churches out there got together and said, on the bad days like this where the air quality is terrible, our members are not required to breathe? 
Why don't they ever vote for rules like that? It'd be so convenient to help their members. You laugh, it's silly, because we can't change design laws, laws of health, laws of gravity, laws of physics. No, no committee can vote to change those. They can make the vote, but it has no impact. It's silly. So what would it mean if a church did vote to change God's law, other than they don't see it functioning like that? They see it nothing but a system of rules. That's all. That's why they vote to make the change. And so the real change in the law was not removing the second commandment about making images, was not splitting the the tenth into two so there would still be ten, was not changing the day of worship from Sabbath to Sunday. This was not the real change. These were the symptoms or the evidences of the change that Christians no longer see God's law as design law. We see it as a system of rules like humans make. And thus God becomes worshipped like a dictator, like an imperial uh, imperial deity, the enforcer, the one we need to be protected from. So Isaiah not only prophesies that God's people will be repairers of the breach, but they will also raise up the foundations of many generations. Remember this prophecy? We repair the breach, but we also raise up the foundations of many generations. What is the raising up the foundations of many generations? Well, what are the foundations of God's government? That Satan has torn down in the minds and hearts of people. What are they? Well, what is the foundation of any government? Any government. The foundation is? It's law. That's the foundation of its government. Ours is the Constitution. It's the law. It's the foundation upon any government. So would the foundation of God's government be God's law? And what type of law do you see it to be? Back to the same question. Design law, creator, the protocols upon which the the, the creator built reality to operate, or just a system of rules that he then polices and enforces with punishments? Consider these historic quotes from one of the founders of the Adventist Church. First is... Signs of the Times, December 15, 1914. The law of love is the foundation of God's government. And the service of love is the only service acceptable to heaven. This is Christ's Object Lessons 49. Love must be the principle of action. Love is the underlying principle of God's government in heaven and earth. And it must be the foundation of the Christian's character. This alone can make and keep him steadfast. Or this one. Great Controversy 493. The law of love being the foundation of the government of God, the happiness of all created beings depended upon their perfect accord with its great principles of righteousness. Pause right there. Why? That seems so arbitrary. You got a rule and I'm not gonna allowed to be I'm not allowed to be happy unless I obey your rules. What kind of a God is that anyway? This is what you hear from the immature until you understand how reality works. Many people are pursuing happiness. I see this in my practice all the time. I just want to be happy, Doc. What's your goal? Come to see me. I want to be happy. Happiness is a byproduct. What's a byproduct? It's something you get from doing something else. Sawdust is a byproduct of woodworking. You don't go out into nature and get sawdust. You have to do something with wood to get sawdust. It's a byproduct. Happiness is a byproduct of healthiness in all domains. When you're physically unwell, you're not healthy physically. Are you happy? When you're relationally unwell, you're going through a divorce, your kids won't talk to you, you have relationship unwellness. Are you happy? 
Spiritually unwell, you're under guilt, condemnation, shame with God. Are you happy? Psychologically unwell, in your head, I'm no good, I'm a loser, I can't do anything right, nobody likes me. Are you happy? Go across the domains. Happiness is the result of healthiness, and healthiness is only achieved in harmony with the laws of health. health. You cannot have health while violating the laws of health. You cannot have relational health while violating God's design for relationships. You cannot be happy cheating on your spouse. It's not possible. You can't do it. And so what happens when people are unhealthy and they're not happy, they substitute pleasure-seeking for happiness. I'm not happy. I'll do something to make me feel better. I'll get high. I'll get drunk. I'll spend money and go on a shopping spree. I will have another lover tonight. I will go to the bar and pick somebody up. Uh, In other words, I'm not happy, so what am I going to do? I'm going to make my feelings change in the moment by seeking some pleasure. But almost all pleasure-seeking is actually violations of the laws of health. The laws of mental health, spiritual health, relational health, physical health, and thus result in diminishing happiness, more unhappiness, and so it becomes a reinforcing cycle that drives a lot of the addictions. So I tell people, don't pursue happiness. Wrong question. You should stop and go, where am I not healthy? Because you can pursue healthiness. And healthiness always comes, so you can't avoid the health-damaging consequences by violating the laws of health. You can't avoid them. Conversely, you can't avoid the health benefits by harmonizing with them. That's how the laws work. So back to the quote now. The law of love being the foundation of the government of God, the happiness of all created beings depended upon their perfect accord with his great principles of righteousness. Do you see this is simply design law? There is no arbitrary rule here. There is no record book. There is no recording angel. There is nobody going behind to to get a demerit. There's no prosecuting attorney. There's no judicial tribunal. This is all part of the infection of the little horn power who sets himself up in God's temple, (coughs) proclaiming himself to be God. And the whole world worships and wonders after this beastly system of enforcement and coercion. Including in this church. It is commonly taught. We have a message, though, that frees hearts and minds. Continue on the quote. God desires from all his creatures the service of love. Homage that springs from an intelligent appreciation of his character. He takes no pleasure in forced allegiance. And to all he grants freedom of will that they may render him voluntary service. Does human law give you freedom? Are you free not to pay your taxes this year if you don't feel like it? Are you free to drive whatever speed you'd like in, uh, in your community? No. no, human law does not grant you freedom. It enforces, it coerces. It is happy, human law is quite happy with compelled compliance. It doesn't care whether you're happy or not, just obey. Keep the rules. So what are the foundations that we are to raise up? This message at this time. The object lesson. If we're going to apply the object lesson that we are being set free from the captivity of this this distortion from the dark ages, we're being set free and and the spirit temple is being cleansed. We're rebuilding the temple. We're rebuilding the, repairing the walls. We're building up the foundations. What are we raising up? 
What are we repairing? The truth about God's design laws, which are the truth about his character of love. The issue has always been a war over God's character, the knowledge of God, as it says in 2 Corinthians 10. We will not repair the breach in the law by getting every person in the world to go to church on Saturday while we still teach God will punish you if you don't go to church on Saturday. So that is the change that took place in the that's right. It's imperialism. God's law functions like human law. That is the change. Exactly right. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, says the Jews finally completed the building of the wall and moved into Jerusalem. They all gathered in Jerusalem's open square in the seventh month. The seventh month, the month of Tishri, was perhaps the most important month for the Israelites as it was dedicated to the Feast of Trumpets, preparation for God's judgment, first day of the month, the Day of Atonement, Judgment Day, the tenth day of the month, and the Feast of Tabernacles, remembering God's deliverance from Egypt. What's the object lesson? That's the historical reality. They had these feasts. They performed these feasts. They celebrated these feasts. Was there anything... Was there any saving power in participating in the feasts? So they're object lessons. They're teaching tools. They're theater. What is the real uh, life application of these? Yes. These are celebrations of gratitude to God, which is in our soul temple. That is what replaces the unhealthy emotions is our gratitude. No question that every one of these are to be gratitude experiences, trusting, uh, building our trust relation with God, an opportunity to participate in an experiential way um, uh, that helps us grow in our connection with God, if we understand the meaning of it. Okay, But there was a larger reality lesson being taught as well. The, every year they had seven feasts that cycled and they repeated them year after year after year. These seven feasts were an object lesson of the fall of humankind into sin till the recreation of the earth made new. The history of the plan of salvation was acted out in theater every year. And the Passover was the first feast of the year. As soon as man fell into sin, God passed over their sins. Romans 3.25, God left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He passed over. Christ was the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world the so the the first feast of the year is, is teaching that even though we're in sin even though adam and eve rebelled even though they infected themselves god did not bring punishment to bear he passed over the sin and provided a remedy a lamb slain from the foundation of the world to cure the problem this is the first feast and it covers the time of the time of adam's fall the time in human history that's covered by this first feast is the time of Adam's fall until Christ actually died on Passover weekend in AD 31. That's the time covered. The unleavened bread, immediately after passing over, God begins unleavened bread. What's the unleavened bread symbolic of? Jesus said, I am the bread come down from heaven. The word made flesh. Okay, Bread without leaven is... See, leaven represents sin, so this is, uh, this is the bread of heaven with no sin in it. This is Jesus. It represents Jesus. Immediately, God began dispensing the truth, unmixed with error, to nurture and save, which also was, G- was Jesus, the Word, made flesh. 
but it was internalized by those in sin. We, it's from Adam's fall through human history. They've been partaking of the words of truth, but they're now in sin, so they didn't take the word, the, the unleavened bread alone. They took it with something else. Bitter herbs. Life was bitter now. Lots of bitterness in this world because of the sin. We have a promise of a remedy to cure, but even though we're partaking of Christ, there's a lot of bitterness and hurt and suffering in this world. This also represents the time of Adam's fall to Christ's victory at the cross in AD 31. The next uh, was the Feast of First Fruits. The Feast of First Fruits is the victory over death. Christ is the wave sheaf. The uh, represents Jesus, the ultimate first fruit, who was buried and rose again, just like the seed is buried in the ground and comes to life and rises again. Jesus was buried in the tomb and rose again. The, the uh, In sinless perfection, a new humanity he achieved. And those who rose with him on resurrection morning are the representatives of the first fruits that he took to heaven with him as uh, as the, the early harvest. And then there'll be the later harvest that we're, we're looking forward to coming now. And of course, that was fulfilled at the... Uh, at the time of his resurrection. The Feast of Weeks, which is also known as Pentecost, this is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, applying, the Holy Spirit applies or makes effectual in our lives the victory that Christ achieved in his life. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. So the pouring out of the Holy Spirit brings the benefits of what Christ achieved into the hearts and minds of his people. And this, of course, this occurred in, at Pentecost in AD 31. And the time uh, symbolically um, represents uh, the time of the Pentecost 8031 all the way until the loud cry. This is the Feast of Weeks. This Feast of Trumpets, a special message for the end time, the loud cry, prepare, get ready, it's time to be reconciled, it's time for at one minute reconciliation, unity. It's time to make right judgments. The hour of God's judgment has come. It's time to judge him to be trustworthy. It's time to open your heart for him to examine you and judge what needs to be fixed and healed so that he can write the law in your hearts and minds the day of a at one where the law is in the most holy place. He's writing it on your heart and mind. The feast symbolically spans the time um, from the late 18th, 19th century and the Great Awakening up until 1844. And then atonement, reunification with God, oneness with him, the healing and restoration of Christ-like character, then settling into the truth so that one cannot be moved, the sealing. And this is from the mid-19th century, about the 1844, until the second coming of Christ. And then the Feast of Tabernacles, after we have been restored to trust and he has finished his work in heart, mind, and character so that when he comes, we will see him face to face for we shall be like him, right? Then we will tabernacle with him in an earth made new. That's why they would make the little tabernacles and the green boughs and stuff, symbolically showing an earth refreshed and renewed where we will tabernacle with God. So the Jews finished building the walls of the first, uh, at the time of, so notice when they finished the balls. At the Feast of Trumpets. Feast of Trumpets, which is followed then by the Feast of Atonement. Okay, and then, the, so it was all in that same month. But this is, notice when historically, the message, the walls, what are the walls we're rebuilding? The foundations we're rebuilding? 
the truth about God's design law, rejecting imperialism. And the great awakening comes up. And the great awakening says, hey, God's laws aren't like this. God is the creator. And the Sabbath is remembered. And what's the Sabbath the symbol of? The power of God. And what's his power? His design laws, truth, love, freedom. This was all recovered. And a message that God is wanting to finish the work in his people so that he can come again. So where do we see us in this process today? Did ancient Israel, when set free, when given authority to rebuild a Jerusalem, did they meet opposition? Have we met opposition in presenting this message? Did the opposition to Israel come only from those outside the nation? Does the opposition to this message come only from those who are not Christian? Monday's lesson... Did you find that interesting, the comparison, the object lesson comparison? You can do this with almost the entire Old Testament. Remember, there were millions and millions and millions of people who lived in Old Testament times. How many do we have recorded in Scripture? So do you believe that your sovereign, omniscient God can select from the millions of lives the historical, real histories with real people doing real stuff, lives that represent and teach a bigger lesson. Because he have the, the, the power to say, I want this life recorded here because it, it, it symbolizes or represents something beyond their own life. Yeah. Monday's lesson. First paragraph. It says, Ezra brought the law before the assembly to read. What did he read to them? Only the Ten Commandments over and over for half a day? The reference to the book of the law is to be understood as the five books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy, known as in the Hebrew as the Torah. The term law, therefore, covers only a part of what was included in, in the reading. It would have been better to translate it as the instructions. They are God's instructions, enabling us to know the path on which we should walk in order not to miss the goal. And then, um, yeah. So, did, so what did Ezra read to them? The first five books of Moses. How does this, uh, how does this apply to us today? Do we read the Old Testament and take the instructions as literal instructions for our application today? Or do we read them through both the design law lens and the theatrical understanding they were acting out a drama or a play of a larger reality? In other words, do we interpret the metaphor to its reality-based truth or do we stay stuck in the metaphor? There were four types of law in, in Old Testament, four types. There was ceremonial law. This is the law over sacrificial systems, law regulating animals which to be sacrificed, how the priests were to dress, practices for what you did on the various festivals and so forth. There was ceremonial law. There was civil law, laws regulating disputes between people of various kinds, both civil and criminal. There was health laws, laws regulating the keeping of foods, touching of blood, washings of clothes. All these things were regulated, but they were based on the laws of health to keep the disease down. And then there were moral laws. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and neighbor as yourself. All four types of laws were applicable to Israel. They had to obey them all. What about us today? How many of those are applicable to us? Are the ceremonial laws applicable to us? Applicable or applicable? Either, either. Neither, neither. What, what do you think when we read things in Scripture like this? 
This is Psalms 19, 7 and 8. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. And commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. What do you hear being described? Is the psalmist saying that the Bible is a rule book with perfect list of rules that we are to identify and keep? And if you keep the perfect list of rules, then you are righteous. Are we to look to the Old Testament for rules, the rules for Israel, and we apply those to our lives today? Many people use the Old Testament in this way, or the Bible at large in this way. Find a proclamation, find a rule, directive given to Israel, and then apply it to us directly. It's a terrible way to use the Bible. Yes? The feast days. Are they stuck in the theatrical part? She says, what about people who practice the feast today? I don't know their motives, and I don't know why they're doing it. Um, you know, every year here at uh, Sunrise Service, at Easter time, they help change the whole campus into like a little mini city of Jerusalem, and they reenact in theater the uh, crucifixion weekend and the, and the trial and crucifixion and resurrection of Christ theatrically enact it. Now, does anybody believe that the people participating in that are doing that because they think that somehow gives them salvation? Or are they doing that as a teaching tool to help people recognize and connect maybe more meaningfully with with what Christ has done? So could people still do some of these Old Testament feasts through a a way to learn, identify with what the lessons were? I think that's possible. Could those people do it because they are actually stuck and think, well, I have to do this, and if I don't do this, then I can't be righteous. And they're doing it simply as a mechanism for righteousness without any understanding. So to me, um, they're not required for us. In fact, uh, they were done away with for a purpose because they've been so corrupted with misunderstanding that they're actually obscuring the truth at that point in human history. All the traditions that have been attached through the ages by the the leadership had become so corrupt that, that when they did them, they actually obstructed truth rather than enlightening mind. But could a Christian maybe carry one of these out on a particular occasion and by it reflect on what the... God intended for people to learn. I think there could be benefit in that. I I don't judge people for doing that. But it goes to the motive, and I don't know the motive. So, so is this a rule book? So many people will use the Bible this way, and I find it's a very bad way. Anybody, you notice people who use the Bible this way? They'll pull out a quote. They'll find a nice verse. They'll throw it in your face. Well, this is what God commanded be done. They only select the ones that work with their system. The ones that contradict their system, they won't use even though they're in the same manual of instructions. Right, often in the very next verse. I, I, I read, disappointingly so, I won't tell you where I read it, but I read this week an article on an online magazine, Christian magazine, by someone who is well reputed to be a good Christian scholar and somebody that I've actually read their materials and other subject matters in the past and, and actually found beneficial and insightful. But this particular article used the Old Testament selecting verses in order to currently undermine the, the President of the United States. It was a political attack on how this current government of the United States is dealing with the aliens amongst our midst, using the alien laws of the Old Testament to try to make that case. Now, I am not going to promote or defend any policy of the U.S. government or any earthly government. I'm not here to do that. I'm speaking about the use of the Bible and how we use the Bible 
Because it was very interesting, the scholar used talking about in ancient Israel how they had laws that they were to be hospitable to the aliens in their midst. And they used them to indict the current policies of this, of this government, saying this is, this is wrong. But in the same instructions, at the same time, in the same five books of Moses, you will find that God instructed them to kill men, women, and children, wiping out entire populations of ethnic groups that didn't agree with them. Now, why didn't he bring those laws to bear in his discussion how we should treat the ethnic groups around us today that don't agree with us? You see, I'm not promoting we should do that. I'm only pointing out that you cherry-pick uh, Bible text like this, you misunderstand what's really transpiring. Yes? There's also instructions to the aliens joining the group that they are to assimilate into the Israelite culture. That's right. There's instructions for the Israelites to welcome the aliens. There's instructions for the aliens to integrate into the Israelite culture. And they would wipe out the ones that didn't. Yes. So. And they also, or they would have them as slaves. So the ones that wouldn't assimilate were not welcome. They were either killed or they were assimilated as slaves. I'm simply saying this was an argument using the Bible in a way that many people go, yeah, 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 but it's fraudulent. I'm not arguing for the policy that is being practiced by the Trump administration, and I'm not arguing against the policy. You guys, that's a completely different question. I'm arguing how we use the Bible. And I, and I was really, really disappointed that this Bible scholar would do this. Really disappointed. The Bible is not a code book. And David was not speaking in the Psalms that I read about a list of rules we are to memorize and follow. David was speaking about God's design laws. And so here in the Psalms and the remedy, here's how I paraphrase that same Psalm. The design law of God is perfect, restoring one's life. The principles of the Lord are constant, imparting wisdom to those without it. The prescriptions of the Lord are right, bringing happiness to the life. The protocols of God are brilliant, enlightening the mind. This is design law, how reality actually works, and David understood it. Now, sometimes I get questions from people, do you really think, you, I love your picture of design law, but do you really think the people in Old Testament times understood this? Well, they were supposed to. David, I think, did in the Psalms I just read. But how about Solomon in Proverbs 6, 23 to 29? Listen to what Solomon says. See if you hear design law. For these commands are a lamp. This teaching is a light. And the corrections of discipline are the way to life, keeping you from the immoral woman, from the smooth tongue of the wayward wife. Do not lust in your heart after her beauty or let her cap captivate you with her eyes, for the prostitute reduces you to a loaf of bread. Now listen to this. And the adulteress preys upon your very life. Can a man scoop fire in his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. Do you hear design law in that? Is there a punishment for walking on hot coals or scooping fire into your lap? Is there a punishment for doing that? From where does the punishment come? There you go. Is there a punishment for committing adultery? Yes. It hardens the heart, corrupts the character, incites fear, causes you to become a liar and a fraud. Your integrity is, is damaged. This is designed. The Bible writers knew this. The lesson asks, how are we to relate to God's word? Well, it's not a code book of deeds to be done and sins to be shunned. 
It's a revelation from God that is to be taken exactly as it reads without... Is it a revelation from God to be taken... This is a question. Is it a revelation from God to be taken exactly as it reads without reasoning it through? God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Is it a revelation from God? Yes. Yes. In which God actually tells us we are to reason it out and reason through. Yes. Yes. One of the... It's one of three revelatory or revelation threads God has given us to reveal truth to us. Scripture, science and nature, Romans one twenty, God's divine nature, seeing what he's made, so the men are without excuse, but I like, here's another one. I found, I found a couple more. Job 12, 7 through 9. This is Job speaking, not one of the other people. I don't really quote those other people because they often get it wrong, but I, I quote Job, okay? <laughs> okay? But here's Job speaking. But ask the animals, and they will teach you, or the birds of the air, and they will tell you, or speak to the earth, and it will teach you, or let the fish of the sea inform you, which of all of these does not know that the hand of the, what the land, hand of the Lord has done. What's, where is he telling you to learn a lesson? Nature. Or Psalms 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. So first book, and then, and then the other one, so it's scripture, science, nature, and the third is experience. As they walked in the cool of the day, Adam and Eve experienced God. Taste and see that the Lord is good, the psalmist writes. Thomas, in his moment of doubt, how many Bible verses did Jesus quote to him? Touch my wounds. Stop doubting and believe or have faith based on your experience with me. Okay? Think about the patriarchs. Noah. How was it that Noah came to know the truth? Did he read the Bible? No, there was no Bible for Noah to read. The patriarchs did not have scripture. What did, they, what did Noah have? He had an experience with God. Okay? Now, of the three books, scripture, science, experience, which is the first book God gave first? Nature and science, even before man was made. God created the world first. Second book is experience. They had experience. And all the patriarchs had experience. And the third book is scripture. The third book is scripture. Do you notice how the devil wants to divorce these? Break them up. The devil wants to be sola scriptura. Scripture and scripture alone. By itself, isolated, disconnected from how life actually works. Disconnected from science, nature, and experience. Because once you disconnect the, the scriptures... No longer anchored in design law. In reality, well, there are 34,000 different Christian groups arguing what the scripture means. You can make it mean anything. And you really can. You can have all types of texts that are subject to interpretation. And, you will, and, and it's not persuasive simply to argue the Bible amongst the Bible. It's not. I've, I've, how many of you have had the privilege of doing Bible studies with someone from another faith and going through the evidence of the scripture, which were quite compelling to you, has no impact on them at all? Why? The words mean different things. The words mean different things because the scriptures are not anchored in reality. If you anchor them in design law, in testable law, and they understand how law of liberty works, law of love works, Law of exertion works. Law of worship works. They understand how reality works. Then the scriptures begin to mean different things. You cannot have love in an atmosphere without freedom. It's not possible. And so certain scriptures that sound God thundering or threatening have to be interpreted in a different way. Well, why would he do that if he can't get love? Not by might nor by power, but by the spirit. Why? There's a couple of other quotes in here. I want to skip those from and move on. 
I had an email recently. Actually, somebody posted on one of our Facebook pages, I think it was. Jennings doesn't believe in the scripture. He believes in reason over scripture. Human reason above scripture. That's what Jennings believes in. Somebody posted that. This was one of the allegations from the theology professor over here at one of the local universities when I had a discussion with him. He alleged that I put human reason above scripture because I insist that we have to actually reason through what it means rather than just take it as it reads. And he went, no, you have to take it as it reads. Can't reason. Just take it as it reads. Well, let's look at the scripture. Romans 14.5. Let each person be fully convinced in their own mind. How are you going to be convinced if you actually don't think about the words and what they mean? Uh, Hebrews 5, 14 and 15. But solid food is for the mature whose faculties have been trained by practice to distinguish good from evil. What does that word by practice mean? Does that mean I just take it as it reads? I actually have to think about it. And by the way, that's the law of exertion. You want strong math ability? You got to work problems. You want strong discerning skills from truth and error? You got to actually think it through and practice discerning. And your, and your brain forms networks when you do that. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white like snow. God connects reasoning with him and cleansing from sin. I no longer call you servants, rather than I call you friends, because servants don't understand their master's business. John 15, 15. 1 Peter 3, 15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that is in you. Christ Object Lessons, page 59. Merely to hear or read the word is not enough. He who desires to be profited by Scripture must meditate upon the truth that has been presented to him. By earnest attention and prayerful thought, he must learn the meaning of the words of truth. Or, to Christ 105. God never asks us to believe without giving sufficient evidence upon which to bathe our faith. His existence, his character, the truthfulness of his word are all established by testimony that appeals to our reason. And this testimony is abundant. Our faith must rest upon evidence, not demonstration. Real quick, on Tuesday's lesson, it says in the lesson, points out that Nehemiah had 13 people standing. Nehemiah writes that Ezra had 13 people standing there when he was reading the scripture to help interpret and so forth the scripture. Any significance in pulling out the 13 people? 13 in the Bible has a symbolic number, representation. Do you know what it represents in the Bible? It represents rebellion against God. The dragon is mentioned 13 times in the book of Revelation. Nimrod was the 13th generation from Ham. The Valley of Hinnon, which represents some evil practice, is mentioned 13 times in Scripture. Solomon spent seven years building God's temple, but 13 years building his own. So most Bible scholars believe 13 represents rebellion from God. So why does the author of the lesson point out that there were 13 people with him? Because 13 plus 1 equals... Ah, Okay, it was 13 with Ezra. It wasn't actually 13, there was 14. And this is how errors can creep into our thinking. It's true, there were 13 with Ezra. Don't get stuck on the 13, there's actually 14. And 14 in Bible symbolism actually represents salvation, perfection, and healing. It's a multiple of seven. And that's what it represents. But this is the kind of, you read it and it says there were 13 people there. And you go, oh, what's the number 13? I've seen this kind of stuff happen. So the lesson talks about, at the very end of the bottom, it says, as Protestants, we understand that individual believers must know the word of God for themselves, and we must not blindly accept anyone else's word on biblical truth, regardless of their authority. And you know, I will say it, I've said it in here, how many times have I said it, but I'll say it again, I am not here to tell you what to think. 
You have your own individuality, your own identity, your own ability to reason and think. I'm here to challenge you, present ideas, concepts, but you have the responsibility to think it through, weigh the evidence, and come to your own conclusion. Why is it important that you think for yourself? What happens if you get the right answer because your professor at school told you the answer and it's right? But you never actually... But you know the answer. You know the answer. But you haven't actually come to know why it's the answer. You just know it's the answer. Many people do this. They, you ask them a question. Well, my pastor said... How many of you have had the experience of people not willing to engage with you because their pastor said, don't that come and reason ministries doesn't teach the truth. Don't, 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 don't talk to those people. Well, have you actually evaluated? No, no, my pastor said, my pastor said. My grandma, my grandma, she, she believed this way, and she was a really good Christian woman, so if she believed it, I, I'll believe it too. What's the problem with this? Is knowing the answer to a math question the same as knowing how to do math? That's the problem with much of Christian teaching. Much of churches and Christian schools teach people an indoctrination of the 28 fundamentals, or here's the right answer. But they never teach them actually how to think, how God's universe works, the laws upon which reality are built, why it's the right answer. They don't teach them. So this is that quote. Um, this is from Second Testimony 129. If we mistake the wisdom of man for the wisdom of God, we are led astray by the foolishness of man's wisdom. Here's a great de- danger of many in, and you can fill in the blank. Maybe it says College Dale. I don't know. Or Chattanooga. You can fill in the blank. It's a blank. Put in the blank. They have not an experience for themselves. They have not been in a habit of prayerfully considering for themselves with unprejudiced, unbiased judgment. Yeah, that, that, that's a sermon in itself. Unprejudiced, unbiased judgment. Questions and subjects that are new and ever like, liable to arise. They wait to see what others will think. If these dissent, that is all that is needed to convince them that the subject under consideration is of no account whatever. Although this class is large... It does not change the fact that they are inexperienced and weak-minded through long yielding to the enemy and will always be as sickly as babes walking by another's light, living by on others' experience, feeling as others feel, and acting as others act. They act as though they had not an individuality. Their identity is submerged in others. They are merely shadows of those whom they think are right. Unless these become sensible to their wavering character and correct it, they will, all fail. they will all fail of everlasting life. That's profound if you believe what this person's saying. They will be unable to cope with the perils of the last day. They will possess no stamina to resist the devil, for they don't even know it's him. Some of them must be at their side to inform them whether a friend or a foe is approaching. They are not spiritual, therefore spiritual things are not discerned. They are not wise in the things which relate to the kingdom of God. Neither young nor old are excusable in trusting to another to have an experience for them. Second Testimony 129. Well, that's profound, guys. Mm-hmm. What kind of law was being described here? Law it's the law of exertion. It's design law. The law of liberty. Law of liberty. You subsume your idea. That's right. That's right. Both laws are being described. If you're not exercising it, you're losing it. And if you're surrendering your judgment to somebody else, you're actually becoming a shadow of that person. So both laws, that's exactly right. This is design law. It's how reality works. It's testable. It's reproducible. This is not, it's predictable. And, do you, and isn't it sad? Do you think this is only, this process of surrendering thinking to someone in authority is only happening in religious organizations? Or do you look around in society and see masses 
I see a lot of uh, a lot of young people getting caught up in certain educational systems that are indoctrinating them to see the world through a certain lens they never actually reason through. It's not how reality works. It's fraudulent. It's false. It's, but it's it, it's it's fantastical. That's known as fantasy. But it's appealing to some something they like. There's a lot of religion that's fantastical. Because it appeals to something. But it's not how reality... Our job is to practice by, uh, by uh, our, our capacities to think and reason and practice them that we become mature to be able to discern the right from the wrong. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are the God of truth, the God of love, the God of liberty, that you have given us these abilities, made us in your image. Satan wants to destroy within us the capacity to think and to do. But you have sent your son to deliver us from that power and you've sent the spirit of truth now we ask for the spirit of truth to enlighten our minds and enable us and to set us free and empower us to grow into the full statures of sons and daughters of god that we can be discerning thinking individuals shining your light into this world we pray in your holy name amen Amen.